Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh My dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foes out there Welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host Didi Hussain Before I introduce today's guest I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners That you can find this show And all three seasons on all the major audio platforms If you're tuning in via YouTube Don't be cheeky Remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel Today's guest is someone whose presence has been long overdue He's a dear brother, a friend and an advisor to much of what Five Pillars does, and he is a senior veteran activist, thinker, lobbyist, amongst many accolades, as well as an academic, and that's none other than the CEO and the founder of Al Cordoba Foundation, Dr. Ustad Anas Takriti. That's very kind of you, Dili. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Alhamdulillah. You honored us after four years. Uh, no, it's my honor. It's my privilege. Amongst your many list of accolades, I've always wanted to ask you this question. Yeah, because today's podcast is entirely serious topics. Mm. Hostage negotiator. Ah, <laughs> yes. share a story with us, please, if you can. Um, there are good stories and there are bad stories. How I'll, many situ- how many situations have you been involved in? I've been involved in twenty eight hostage negotiations. I have, alhamdulillah, succeeded in getting twenty one hostages released. Allah And there are a few ongoing and a few that have closed we don't know where where the where the thread is where the trail is so we don't we don't know unfortunately but um, one of the uh, good stories was that uh, someone called me um, and they belong to a school of thought with which you know that doesn't agree with me and in the past we had had uh, spats uh, mostly private, some in articles written and interviews done and the such. And we have disagreed sometimes quite vehemently, quite quite blatantly. Um, but one day, uh, this particular brother, he calls me and he says that he has um, um, a relative of his who was uh, taken hostage by a gang in the particular country from which he comes and that uh, he requires my help to secure his release because for some reason he won't remain alive for, for, for long. Uh, so by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it was one of the quickest and I would say easiest negotiations and within a matter of less than eight days, nine days, the the boy was back uh, with his family and uh, alhamdulillah that created a great friendship uh, with this brother after years and years of um, refusing to entertain being in the same place okay so that's uh, that's a good story so did you accept your manhaj after that (laughs) (laughs) and uh, but there's also i mean it's a very precarious business i don't i don't wish it on anyone it's not something i look forward to it's always um, difficult to deal with a family's strife. And um, uh, one particular story that really pains me till now, it was about three years ago, just mm-hmm. before COVID. I was contacted by a family in uh, Somalia where the daughter, um, who was barely 13 years old, was kidnapped by gangs roaming in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, no one knew whether they were from Somalia, Eritrea, Djibouti, such. And uh, we began 
starting to find out where she might be, who might hold her, what they want. Do they want money? Is there is it for political show? Is it for something else? And we were getting very, very, very close. Um, but then for some reason they decided to shut off, to totally close off all negotiations, close it down. Maybe they thought that they weren't getting out what they thought, what they were hoping to get out of it. Maybe, maybe they felt threatened for some reason, but um, it closed down. And after speaking with the mother, speaking with the aunts and, uh, you know, feeling how pained they were because of the loss of their teenage daughter, um, and coming back and telling them that the thread was lost, it was heartbreaking. And I feel it till now, three, three years on. So it's, uh, it's a very precarious business. It requires a lot of patience, a lot of entertaining ideas and statements that you totally disagree with, talking to people whom are, to be kind, abhorrent, despicable, absolutely criminal, whom, you know, the, the worst thing about it is the, the ones whom sit in front of you and recite to you verses of the Holy Quran and statements of the Seerah and the Hadith in order to prove that they are doing a great thing and something that pleases Allah. And you try to explain to them that that is absolutely wrong, but you can't push it too much because you're trying to save someone's life. So you have to stay quiet, you have to bite your tongue, you have to sort of sit on how you really feel in order to become close, to get their confidence, and hopefully then, by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to get the, uh, the hostage free. Staying on the theme of heartbreak mm. and abhorrence, 102, 103 days into the war in Gaza. Yeah. When will it end, Ustad? <sighs> Meaning, in your heart, the, how long do you think this will carry <clears> on for? It's been going on for 75 years. Uh, peaks and ebbs, and uh, we have now three over three months of um, a, a systematic campaign of killing, of targeting civilians, regardless of what uh, you know the people holding the guns claim. Um, but in actual fact, it's been going on for years and years and years. You have to realize something. I mean, this is something that is very, very difficult for me and you, most people who live safely in the comfort of their homes, with their families, with their jobs, with, uh, to even imagine. Um, I had the, the privilege of visiting Gaza in 2012. And I spoke to people whom had only known the siege in Gaza for the past, by then it was about seven years. And I remember something that one of the students at the Islamic University in Gaza said when, you know, we had a meeting with young uh, Palestinians from Gaza who were students at the university. And uh, I remember till now this young lad who was something like 19 years old doing physics. And uh, he said, uh, he said, you have to understand what it means to be under occupation. And at first, I didn't really understand what he was getting at. I mean, under occupation, okay, so, you know, it's fairly obvious, no? So he said, uh, Ustav, you need to understand that every second of every day 
you are under occupation. You have to understand, you wake up in the morning, you're under occupation. You go to work, you're under occupation. You look after your children, you're under occupation. You go to bed, you're under occupation. You're ill, you're under occupation. You are happy, you're under occupation. You are occupied every single second of every single day. That had me thinking for days. Because all of a sudden, the reality of being occupied, the reality of not being free to even think to yourself, you know what, today I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to go to the park. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to go and meet up with my friends. I'm going to have a nice meal and, you know, stay up late. Every single decision you make is a decision that needs to abide by the rules and regulations of being occupied. That's something that no one, no one who hasn't actually either been in jail or lived an existence under occupation actually understands. And therefore, for myself, I'm sure for many of, of the viewers or the listeners, will think that it's the past 102 days, 103 days, 105 days. We may soon be talking about 120, 150, 200 days. But this is just part and parcel of the whole package of how you exist. Gaza has been under siege now for 17 years. There are young men and women who are 17 years old who have known nothing, nothing but being under siege. It means you need, you're admitted to a university abroad to pursue whatever. You need to take your relative, your elder mother, for instance, for treatment somewhere else outside of Gaza. I'm sorry, it's not like us. We go online, we book, and then we, we travel. It's not like that. You make the booking and then you pray and you hope that the Rafah boarding will open up. And if it doesn't, that it doesn't stay closed for weeks on end, months on end, that you don't miss absolutely that academic year simply because the Rafah crossing hasn't opened. That kind of thinking is something that no one, no sane person, no ordinary person can actually imagine. But it's something that two and a half million Ghazans have been subject to for 17 years. One of the, the very first tweets that I posted, are they still called tweets? I don't know. They're still tweets. Um, when uh, when the, the war began, when the 7th of October happened, was that, what did you expect? What do you expect of an entire nation whom you have absolutely caged like animals for over 17 years? What do you expect? Do you expect them to, to what? Acquiesce to whatever restraints you've imposed and to smile and be happy? Embrace what? it. What, 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 do, what do you expect? And this, what's happened on the 7th of October, and although this might be a time, but it's something that's been asked and talked about time and time again, is an affirmation that these people are human beings. Forget politics. Forget security. Forget ideology. Forget faith. It's an affirmation 
but these people are human beings. They, they are alive. And as such, it's, it's something that needs to be celebrated by everyone, regardless whether you agree with the people of Gaza, with the, the, the resistance, or whether you don't. That they're still alive, 17 years on, with the world watching, that these people still have it in them to try to find that breath of fresh air, to yearn for freedom. It just, it's an affirmation of humanity. How would you then respond to those who have posited this, even internally within our own community, the Muslim community, some? I would still say it's still a fringe position, but some are uttering this now as the mm. war continues. Was it worth it? Was it worth 25,000 <clears> dead, a million and a half or more displaced, infrastructure entirely destroyed? Mm. Was Tufan al-Aqsa worth it? Unfortunately, I wish it was a fringe minority that was asking that question. I was having some level of Hussein It was, uh, it's unfortunately some, well, it's let's just say it's, 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 the becoming official, louder now. it's the official uh, Arab regime, official Arab line to say, was it, worth what, it? was it worth it? All of this, was it worth it? That question can only be asked by someone who has the luxury of not even considering, not even for an iota of a second, of being constrained in, in body and mind and everyth everything. They have that luxury and therefore, yes, of course, they'll ask that question. Oh, was it? Well, as someone said, you were living before. So it is as though, as long as you're inhaling and exhaling. Just surviving. Just you should be grateful for just and existing. you should never jeopardize that. There's, a, there's a, a great saying by someone whose name I forget, that there are, <clears throat> there are people and there are minority that spend their entire lives struggling for freedom, for liberation. But the vast majority of people, and they form the second group, spend their entire lives trying to improve the conditions of their slavery. So I'm boxed here, but you know what? I'd like to paint this wall orange or yellow. I'd like to move this table from this corner to the other, but I'm still caged. You know what? I'd like to wear a yellow shirt today. I'd like to do whatever with my hair and my appearances. But you're a slave, you're enslaved. The most that you're doing is that you are sort of appropriating or maybe improving a little bit the conditions of your slavery. Is that, you, a, is that a survival mechanism or is it done with perhaps a more sinister... Most, most people, unfortunately, in today's world are oblivious to the fact that... I mean, let's look at the West. I've spent my entire life here in the UK and in the West are. generally. and. Yeah. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt that, you know, my people, the people of this country, the people of this continent are slaves. Uh, they're enslaved to materialism. They're enslaved to consumerism. They're enslaved to, um, you know, call it pop culture, enslaved to things. And ultimately, every single one of them is deeply depressed in terms of their 
economic means, of their ability to actually think for themselves, to actually assess for themselves. And we're seeing now because of Gaza how actually even the freedom that we used to talk about, absolutely, you know, it's not really there. All of a sudden it's been taken away very, very easily. You say something, you post something, and you will know this. Of course. You say something and you're thinking that you're in, you know, His Majesty's UK and that freedom is a, is, is, is a pillar of Western democracy and the such. Yet you quickly find out that that is a mirage almost. That no, freedom is given to whomever the establishment afford that freedom to. But if the powers that be... Um, do not wish to provide that freedom, then you don't get it. It's like digress, but it's related. <clears throat> so let's give the viewers and listeners two anecdotal examples of what actually happened in terms of what you've just described. Um, before we started filming, and I know you were aware, I had uh, I was I had the unfortunate privilege of being visited by two police detectives yeah. over a tweet. Mm -hmm. Stad, um, they wanted a quick chat. I invited them in. And they said to me that they've come to visit me for two reasons. Reason number one, to be mindful of what I post, but I've not broken any laws. And number two, they came for my safety. What's your thoughts on that? It's absurd. It's absurd. I Police detectives, not even, not even like you. A neighbour of mine uh, <laughs> had their car stolen. Um, and the police wouldn't come and see them for days they wanted to report a crime it was stolen from in front of their house and they had the pictures of the robbers wow. on the cctv and ultimately the police said listen we're really busy apparently they were visiting you yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're really busy so we just call up your insurance company i mean it's it's utterly absurd over a tweet or stud and to tell you that by the way You've not broken the law. You've not broken the law. To, come in, to, to actually have two police officers come knock on your door and then have a conversation to say you You've haven't broken, broken the, law. the law. And how many people have had uh, visits also from officials telling them why do you have the Palestinian flag, flag, for instance, showing from the bedroom. It's, um, it's utterly absurd. And some of my friends who, you know, were residents of the UK for some reason, either a university or work or the such, many, many years, years ago. When I tell them about what's happening, they're in absolute disbelief. They're in absolute disbelief. I mean, again, you know, we, we digress, but, you know, just a few months ago, the, the story was about bank accounts of and course. being debanked and the of such. Course. And yourself being on a list that was provided by a foreign government, uh, bank closures for yourself, uh, not the first time, happened previously. Several times. And yet, yet, um, whenever you ask anyone, listen, is there an issue? Have I done something wrong? Tell us. Nothing. So why? Why is this happening? Who is making these decisions? Um, it's a, it's a state where, and, and coming back to the issue of, of slavery, this is something that we need to educate people. That whilst they think they're free to go to the mall, to buy the latest iPhone, to watch whatever TV program they wish, to download whatever program they like, 
and you know it makes them feel that they are free but in in reality in reality they are not because once they break that cycle of buying stuff of accumulating stuff of having fun having a laugh you know that that's that's the constant pursuit oh we just want to have a laugh that once you try to break that into starting to ask serious questions all of a sudden you're a problem maker you're someone who needs a visit from the authorities in order to make sure for your own safety to be mindful to be mindful it's um, it's something that you know what uh, dili i think that um, uh, whilst it's it's quite tragic and saddening what we're seeing but at the same time i am seeing how this is causing more and more and more people to think more freely to push themselves and to say listen you know we've never asked these questions before but now now i'm going to start asking i've seen that a lot amongst some muslims and and we're seeing and people are telling me they said listen we never ever thought that we would be researching you know zionism for instance or the occupation of palestine or nakba or the nakba now everyone knows what the nakba is yes it's um, so in a way you sometimes need bad things to happen so that good things could emerge and i i i personally believe that the majority the vast majority of of our people the our tribe the people that amongst whom we live and interact are good natured and once they know the truth they will pursue that inshallah inshallah another anecdotal example but from the i would say the more the other side because lines have been drawn mm. this conflict if it's done anything is drawn a line between those who are pro apartheid pro genocide pro occupation and those who are people of conscience and justice yeah just before starting filming this i've just got back from the boys club house yeah uh, which is part of a jewish uk registered charity called achienu mm. they were going to host an individual called levi simons yeah despicable Le- yes levi, yeah. levi simon is a british dual national idf fighter who posted two videos a video of him rummaging through a sister's nightwear after home was evacuated for all we know she could be dead yeah and a second video of himself at a school in Gaza partially damaged where he raised the Israel flag and said we will be teaching Hebrew in Gaza from now on he was invited to address a group of young disillusioned Jewish boys yeah to which i went there but how is this possible how is it that the most documented genocide of our era and people who are participating in it are posting videos on social media and TikTok videos of of pure unadulterated dehumanization yeah. and they came back and they've been received by charities yeah to address young children and the fact that he was selected to address these young boys as a special means guest. that he is seen as a star as a celebrity of sorts he's someone who will have a positive influence i'm thinking you know this is the only logical way i'm thinking how on earth can you invite someone of this particular ilk to address this particular crowd vulnerable young, young jewish boys jewish boys it's only because you see this person as a, a very good influence a very good example it's um, i mean we can talk about dozens of incidents where 
either you think that sanity has been thrown out of the window and that now it's, you know, the, the people who have absolutely lost their capacities, their mental capacities are now running Israel's the, the ambassador place. to the UK, every second <clears throat> home or school or mosque is a target. Imagine, I mean, how someone can actually utter those words is something which is which is beyond me. I can't even think of how that happens. But Why is on, there such a disparity? You've been in this game for years. Why is there such a blatant disparity in, way, in the way the Palestinians and the Muslims are being dealt with and how Zionist dual nationals are being dealt with and just Israelis generally? Why is there such a huge, massive disparity in the way which our government, our the opposition party have dealt with this? Why is that? A few years ago, Al Jazeera came up with a three-part uh, series called Fantastic documentary. Uh, The Lobby. Yep. And it spoke of the Israeli embassy's um, team that play um, quite an influential, and as it turned out, That's to put it extremely influential mm -hmm. uh, position in terms of who remains with a political career and who doesn't in British politics. Um, unfortunately, that program didn't get the kind of, of, of attention that it should. And I think people should should actually watch it and, and really, you know, pin it somewhere because it's something we need to refer to. The Israelis have been very, very smart, very, very clever. And I'm not saying that particularly in a complimentary way, but it, very, very shrewd in the way that they have uh, pushed for uh, influence in main major Western countries, including the United Kingdom, as well as the United States and others piled hundreds of millions of pounds and dollars every single year in order to create a particular image and then to have an influence to um to uh, shed negative light on anyone who dares criticize israel um the the whole thing about anti-semitism for Jeremy instance Corbyn now being yep. it's uh, you know it was it got to a stage where it became a craze almost and i since then and even now continue to warn you know our jewish friends that this is going to come back and bite you because i believe anti-semitism just like islamophobia are abhorrent evil traits which exist and which do spread but make sure that you point to something as anti-semitic that is truly anti-Semitic. Because if you go devaluing everything, everyone who disagrees with you, oh, you must be an anti-Semite, you will lose the value and therefore everything becomes... Anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic. And it becomes devalued. And you mustn't. It's the same, just like, you know, some lads uh, a few years ago called me up, uh, their dad called me up and said, you know, the boys were out driving and the police stopped them. So how do we get the police officer on Islamophobia? I said, hang on. Were they speeding? He said, yeah, yeah, but only by... I said, I'm sorry, that's not Islamophobic. You should, you should, you know, you should, be, you should be more careful about how you use the word. And the same way. Unfortunately, these, uh, these issues have been weaponized to an extent, whereby every single expression of criticism towards Israel has been absolutely shut down. And not only shut down, but whoever is behind that um, is labeled as an anti-Semite or, or even sometimes worse. So 
it's it's that kind of influence is something that has managed to creep into our media, our public spaces, our political sphere, and I've forgotten how many figures of, let's say, people who are well known, whether thinkers, writers, journalists, politicians, have told me in private that they absolutely agree with me, but they couldn't, Could they wouldn't dare say that in front of cameras or in front of other people. Um, I said this to a group of people I was with a few weeks ago, and someone met me after and said, in my company, it's the same. You know, when I sit with my head of team or the such, they go, he, 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 they say things that I would absolutely disagree with, which is absolutely anti-Semitic, absolutely. But then when they come out, they're all, you know, punishing those who express solidarity with the Palestinians or the such, simply because it's the, way, it's, it's the thing that needs to be done. And this is something which is, um, which is troubling to the extreme because we do have in our midst, we do have racists, we do have xenophobes, we do have neo-Nazis, we do have despicable characters who would love it, who would absolutely love it if there was open season against the Jewish people. Absolutely. It would be something they would celebrate. Unfortunately, we're giving them that because of the way that no one speaks ill of Israel. No one says anything bad of Israel, otherwise you're anti-Semitic. And it's being devalued to the, to, to the extent mm -hmm. that these people are finding new spaces in which to operate. And we know, you know, the, the likes of Tommy Robinson and the such. We know that in, you know, for some reason there might be a marriage of convenience with the Zionists. And in whatever march EDL sponsors, there's always an Israeli flag. I don't know why. And I don't know why is it that the Israeli embassy doesn't come out and, 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 and sort of denounce this. Because these are the very people who ultimately committed the, the Holocaust a hundred years ago. So, but, but unfortunately, because of the way that public debate is being influenced and being shut down, any kind of criticism of Israel um, is, is labeled this or that. Unfortunately, we're allowing for these spacious, uh, spaces to flourish. It's a big problem. Bringing things back to Gaza, <clears throat> is a ceasefire the only priority right now? A permanent ceasefire? It's what needs to happen right now, today. Um, but then do we go back to pre-October 7th? Do we go back to a siege for another 17 years? Do we go back to uh, uh, another phase of unresolved Palestinian rights that are being absolutely confiscated by the international world? Uh, what do we go back to? It's just a matter of time before this erupts and probably erupts in a, in a more horrific way. And therefore, I think that whilst, yes, we are calling for a ceasefire, we are calling for an end to the targeting and killing of, of civilians. Um, we are calling for the accountability of those who have decided to go on this killing spree and those who have encouraged those who have gone on this killing spree, including politicians in our midst, including the prime minister, including the, uh, the leader of the opposition, as well as many, many others. Of course. Um, 
simply because we can't, we can't simply as a human race, we can't allow for such crimes to be committed so openly, so flagrantly, and with such fanfare and such celebration and encouragement by people who apparently they take care of our healthcare, they take care of our transport system, they take care of our future countries, of, our of the education of our future generations. Mm -hmm. It simply does not, you know, sit fairly with, with it's, uh, uh, so a ceasefire, yes, but an absolute resolution, this, this needs to be resolved. Otherwise, I mean, it's been, now what? It's been 75 years. It could easily go on for another 75 years. And the thing is that, I mean, the project that Israel built is already over. It's already over because it was built on certain pillars, none of which remain. The first pillar was that the Palestinians will forget. The Nakba, the, 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 the genocide that was committed against tens of thousands, over 100,000 Palestinians, the hundreds of thousands that were Dismissed. driven out yep. of their homes and lands and, and made refugees, um, that they will forget and their children will forget that they're Palestinians. <laughs> that hasn't happened. Uh, the fact that Israel to the Jews of the world is the safest place, is the only absolutely safe place it's for a Jew today in the entire world. Um, is evidently and clearly incorrect. Absolutely. The fact that the Israeli army is the most moral, moral army. army, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous just saying it, um, is the most moral army. That's evident and clear. It's, it's, it's anything but. Everything that Israel was built upon um, has now absolutely been, been vanquished. And we have tens of thousands of young, Jewish Zionists, not your normal Jews who are against Israel. No, 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 we're talking about Zionist sons and daughters of Zionist parents who are probably even this very moment living in Israel, coming out and saying, we weren't told, we didn't know. But now we're doing our reading, we're researching, we're asking, we're inquiring, we're seeing the images. We were lied to, we were lied to. This talk about Israel being a moral state is a lie. This talk about uh, the Palestinians wanting to kill us all is a lie. And, and therefore the very premise upon which the idea of Israel was built is no longer. And therefore that idea, in my view, that, that, that was long gone. But what we have now is a thing, an entity, of sorts that is being propped up by what we call today the international community on false premise, allowed to do as it may, as it will, and to create carnage and to create chaos and death, destruction, murder, genocide, um, with the protection and and approval, tacit approval, sometimes explicit approval of the entire world. It's a state of affairs that we mustn't allow to, uh, to persist. And therefore, it's, yes, ceasefire today, but um, a solution, an absolute solution of this problem, absolutely. Let's look at some of the Muslim majority countries, some of the neighboring Arab countries in terms of their role in the ongoing events. 
in some cases complicity in mm. some cases it's just born idleness um it would be wrong not to put some focus there because we've seen so many videos from Gaza where the people are calling out to the arab rulers mm. where are the islamic nations where mm. are the arab rulers <clears throat> and i've always said this i said this to some non-muslim friends some guys that i trained jujitsu with who have seen these videos and went, Dili, you know, we've seen, they've seen, we've seen these videos from Gaza. Why do, why are the people calling out to Arab rulers? Mm. Why are they calling out to other Muslim nations? What are they expected to do? In short, I said, look, there's a premise for it. There's a historical and religious premise for why the people are calling out to their co-religionists in neighboring and regional countries. How realistic is this expectation? For any of the Muslim majority countries, especially those that are neighboring, I'm talking Jordan, I'm talking Egypt, um, Lebanon obviously is a more of a unique case, Syria is a bit of a unique case, we'll get to that at some point in the podcast, but just generally the, the, the apathy, the idleness, the complicity in some cases, if we look at some of the Gulf states, how realistic is this expectation from the Ummah, from the people of Gaza, for the rulers and regimes to do something? Um, Anything. I pretend I, pretend I, to do something. I consider those appeals that we hear every time we see uh, someone standing on the rubble of their homes, <clears throat> looking at the uh, bodies of their slain children, um, calling out to the Arabs, to the Muslims, and the such. I see it more as a statement of condemnation. I don't think that uh, there's any expectation there. I think there's it's a statement of condemnation. It's uh, uh, it's an affirmation of disgrace. And um, but then you have to think. I mean, who else would they call to? The United Nations, or to America, or to whom? I mean. Um, but but let's focus on the Arab and Muslim worlds. Um, I've always said that Israel's um, Iron Dome, the thing that may, they made a big hoo-ha about and got tens of billions of aid in order to, mm. to construct many years ago, the real Iron Dome are the Arab regimes. The real Israeli Iron Dome are the Arab regimes. There's no question about I it. I Ariel Sharon said this, or one of the former Israeli prime ministers. You know, you know the thing is, I wouldn't even go as far as to say to the Arab countries, okay, those armies that you built with hundreds of billions of dollars of your own people's sweat and blood, um, what are they doing? What are they doing? Uh, just sitting there idle. I mean, at least do something in order to defend your own national interests. I wouldn't even go as far as that. We would, you know, if Jordan and Egypt, okay, if Jordan and Egypt who have treaties, peace treaties, so-called peace treaties mm -hmm. with Israel, if they merely made official statements saying, we are going to cancel or annul or even just suspend those treaties, unless Israel stops its bombing of Gaza, I assure you, things would change immediately. Just a threat, an empty threat. Why doesn't it happen? Why does it never happen, Ustad? Because these regimes, the, the whole... It's depleting. it's depleting seeing this, that Egypt has control on paper, not the reality behind closed doors mm. or behind the Iron Curtains. Mm. 
it has the control of Rafa crossing. Mm. It could relieve the Muslims of Gaza. It could relieve the people, the besieged people of Gaza. It chooses not to. Would it be better to think of the Rafah crossing as an not being crossing? not being under the control of the Egyptians in reality, or would it be worse or better if it was under the control of the Egyptians and they failed to open it? It's worse. That's worse. It's worse to know that they control it and not open it, and it's easier to understand that they're not in control of it. See so how we're, we're trying to to find which is the worst of two despicable scenarios. I mean, countries the size of Egypt, with the kind of history that Egypt holds, with the kind of command that Egypt has, and yet we can we can be talking about a scenario whereby. Its own land isn't controlled by the authorities, the Egyptian authorities, but by a foreign entity, which isn't even a neighbor, a direct neighbor. And that is the best of the two scenarios. I mean, it's, it's despicable. It's, it's incredible we're just talking about this. The reality is, and this is something that we're finding is ever more present. The fact is that the regime's know that if they dared speak a word of truth that they would be absolutely exposed for who they are and for their stands arab regimes unfortunately and to varying degrees of course but arab regimes depend entirely for their sustainability on west east corporations whatever it is financial or sometimes China, even worse. russia wherever it breaks wherever it may be this their the objective, the national interest, you know, when you talk about national interest, every single Arab country had it taken Palestine as its natural national interest, it would have gained no end. I actually said something very early on in the second week after the 7th of October, I said, if any Arab leader pretended, I said know, pretended, pretended, just pretended to, care. to come out and say, the Palestinians are our brothers and sisters. We will not allow these attacks to go on and such. I assure you that their nations will back them to the hilt, regardless of the crimes that they had committed against the nation for decades. They would back them to the hilt. They would win on every level if they pursued their own national interests, but they're not allowed to. They know that if they dared use Palestine for the achievement and realization of their own national interests, that would be the end of them. That their main backer, that their main supporter would absolutely leave them hanging there. That in essence basically means that umatic consciousness is something that's blacklisted in the international stage. Well, it's, I mean, when, you talk, when you talk about the concept of ummah even, it's seen as, well, at best, it's seen as a wishy-washy sort of emotional attachment that needs to be... Heck, even pan-Arab then. Even for the sake of the fact that they're Arabs. If, if you're not going to go for an ummati one, at least for the sake of your fellow, even a qawmi one. No one, no one has betrayed and sold the Palestinian people down the river as much as those who called for... Arab nationalism and the Arab regimes one by one you can list them all one by one they absolutely failed 
the Palestinians, not now, not yesterday, not 20 years ago, from the very, very start. You read what uh, Jewish historians like Ilan Pape, for instance, mm -hmm. or Avi Schleim, or even Benny Morris before he, he changed, what they wrote about how the Nakba occurred. It occurred with the complicity of, of, of Arab leaders. It occurred because they were either paid off or threatened with a little bit of this or that, and, and that's it, and, they, and Palestine was sold. And it continued to be sold. And all these uh, sort of pretenses of oh, war or conflict or the such, it was, it was just, uh, just playmaking. It, was, it wasn't real. It wasn't in order to really resolve the issue. The issue of, and, and to be perfectly honest, um, deep inside, uh, I think to myself that sometimes I, I hope that none of those regimes get involved because they would just sully it. They would just sully the cause of the Palestinians. The Palestinian causes for freedom lovers all over the world. And I would say here, regardless of faith, regardless of ethnicity, regardless, Jewish people at the very front lines of defending Palestine, Palestine and Palestinians, they're, they're, they're amongst those freedom-loving people. In the US, people. we've seen that a lot. We've seen a that lot, a, lot. a lot. I mean, when US. you have, and when we talk about the US, by the way, I mean, in, in the UK, we have this tradition of demonstrating in yes, of course. France. Or, yes. But when you talk about the United States and the issue of Israel particularly, it's almost a revolution when you have something like 400,000 people turning up yeah. in Washington, DC, no less, on a freezing weekend, it's uh, it's something which is absolutely unheard of. <clears throat> that, in my view, that is how Palestine, not, and this is important, not the national state, the, the, the sort of, because I don't want an, another Arab country, you know, joining the list of failed Arab countries that have dictatorial regimes and failed policies and, and reliance on the West or the East or the South. That's the last thing I want. Palestine is an idea. And that idea is of human liberation, is of true liberation, true freedom. It's that idea. And therefore, you find people corresponding with that idea as far as Peru, New Zealand, South Africa, everywhere. everywhere. People correspond, respond to that idea because it's an idea. The Irish. It's not, mm. wallahi, because we need this city back and that's that. It's, it's as though we're grabbing land. This is not it. It's more important than that. And that's why people respond to it. I mean, listen, we can now list a dozen, at least, a dozen causes where there have been massacres, genocides, displacements. Every single crime that we can mention happened and occurred. We can talk about the Uyghurs, the Rohingya, the Kashmiris, the Syrians, the Yemenis. We can carry on, go Absolutely. on and on and on. Why is it the Palestine specifically, that sliver of land that can't be seen on the world atlas if you open it up absolutely yet has impacted every single corner of the globe why is that it's because it's an idea it's not a piece of land it's an idea so when people go into the discussion oh a two two state solution a one state solution that is that is 
that is digressing from what the reality of Palestine is. And that's why you have young Muslim, Christian, Jewish, all sorts of people from whatever faith or ethnic background around the world corresponding with Palestine. It's that particular idea. And that's why all of a sudden the Aborigines in Australia are coming up. The Indigenous people Native, Native Americans yeah. are speaking out. People in South Africa, people in various nations are saying, this is us. This is us. Every oppressed people in the entire world see themselves in every single scream made by a, a Ghazan mother or a father or someone who's seen their entire lives shattered before their very eyes. Bringing the podcast to somewhat of a close um, and staying on the subject of external players, countries, let's look at the axes of resistance. Let's mm. look at Iran, let's look at Hezbollah, let's look at Houthis, <coughs> um, yourself, you're Iraqi. Uh, when Qasem Soleimani uh, was killed, you made a special video for Five Pillars uh, some years ago. How should we see, perceive the axes of resistance? I say this because Syria is something which I truly believe many Sunni Muslims have not got over it yet. Mm. And because of for whatever reasons, external or internal, it took very quickly a very sectarian line. Mm. We know that many of these regimes and states use theology and religion to advance their own political causes. That's beyond reasonable doubt. However, because of how Syria panned out, and then Iraq as well, how should we approach the axis of resistance, primarily Iran? Let's start with Iran. Let me start with a general premise okay. that it's important to agree upon, because if we didn't agree on, it would be useless then to carry on talking so, about specific details. Let's go for it. The main premise is we refuse dhulm. Agreed. We refuse dhulm. We reject absolutely, unconditionally, unequivocally, the notion of injustice. However big, however small, a volume is refused. And whoever does it. And whoever does it. I don't care how many rak'ad they pray at night. I don't, many, I don't care how many voluntary fasting days they confer, uh, the, the, or how many verses of the Holy Quran they know by heart. That does not concern me. If they are a volume, they are a volume. And I am on a mission absolutely to remove them and to change them. And I don't care if ultimately, and this was, by the way, this, this is stipulated in our, in the very edicts of our faith. The story of the first migrants that the Prophet ﷺ told to go to Abyssinia, today's Ethiopia. And when he explained why, why Abyssinia out of everywhere, and these were Arabs that were, knew nothing else. Why was he sending them off to cross the sea, which was something which was unheard of? Very difficult. To go to another continent and be ruled by a Christian king. And the Prophet's answer was absolutely sublime, and it's a rule until this very day. It is ruled by a king in whose presence no one is treated unjustly. Justice. Justice, it doesn't matter your faith, your ethnicity, your religion, your ideology, it doesn't matter. Justice is, is the benchmark. That is what we pursue. So coming from that, my take on Iran, particularly because it's very closely associated with my country of origin, um, 
is that it has committed heinous crimes. It has committed heinous crimes, not only in Iraq, but in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. And those crimes, and it's not about, by the way, it's not about spreading Shiism. If they spread Shiism, if they open schools in order to spread Shiism, I personally don't have a problem with that. People are free to call to whatever message they want. That's absolutely fine. So when people point to certain Shiite schools in African countries, I say to them, well, if you're so against it, start opening schools to teach proper Islam in your view. Don't, don't go try, I mean, don't make your mission in life breaking other, others' uh, work or initiatives, regardless of good or bad. Make your mission in life to do good. So I don't care about spreading Shiism. I don't care about, my concern is with the carnage that was created in pursuit of, in my view, a purely political project. Not a theological one. Theological, it was one of the important facades that needed to be used in order to, to, to push forward the political project. Let me give you an example. When uh, recently, when Turkey um, engaged with the war between Azerbaijan and yes. Armenia. Yes. Azerbaijan is a Shia country. Yeah. Yet Iran stood by the Armenians. Armenians, yep. Iran is a very um, robust, ferocious, vicious, and unrelenting political project. And it uses whatever means it's, it's, it may. And therefore, many people who refused and rejected Iran's project in Iraq were assassinated and killed by pro-Iranian militias. militias yeah. It's a purely political. Yes, the sectarian facade is relevant, but it's only relevant when you understand the political project itself. The same in Syria unfortunately became sectarian. In my view, Syria is clearly about freedom and liberation of the Syrian people versus slavery to the dictatorship of the Assad regime, which has been ruling since 1969. It, that was the, the cause. And then unfortunately, and that's how um, pure, um, good, uh, positive campaigns get sullied you start to make people believe that they're based on ethnicity or on sectarian or on you know family feuds or the such and all of a sudden people are saying well if it's, it's a family own, feud it's, it's, it's not something to concern you know? me but we must remain absolutely clear about what these issues are in yemen for instance but what syria these issues are Syria concerned everyone. It's, 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 and it must continue to concern everyone. It must continue to concern everyone. It must. The fact that we go to the extent, even if some of these Syrian revolutionaries who are trying to, you know, find freedom for the Syrian people, even if they, you know, make political mistakes, that must never change our own belief in the purity, in the absolute righteousness of a people's revolution against their dictator for their freedoms for their futures that is something we must stand with regardless whether syria was a was a muslim country or not so from that um i let's just say i would not rely 
on any Iranian Hezbollah, Houthi, Syrian regime, positive uh, influence on what's happening in, in Gaza. I would not rely on that. Listen, it's what, 102, 103 days. And apart from the missiles that were sent by the Houthis to the Red Sea, yeah. we really haven't seen anything. So, you know, we're, we're not sort of hypothesizing uh, here. We're not, Iran we're not, has bombed Iraq and Pakistan though. See, I mean, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, the, the killing continues in Iraq. The killing continues in Syria. I mean, whilst everyone was focused on what's happening in Gaza, Idlib, Idlib, Idlib was bombed. Was bombed, and thousands were killed. It's so we must, I think, be realistic. The first thing is, and listen, if one day Hezbollah said, "You know what? I think enough have been killed in Gaza. We need to really get involved," and they get involved, fine, fine. Thank you, thank you. It's late, but better late than never. But uh, you don't see it happening. Uh, I don't see it happening, and I don't. And and listen, whatever they do, it doesn't cleanse the the blood of hundreds of thousands of Syrians, Syrians, of millions who have been displaced and made homeless around the world. That that can never, ever be forgiven or forgotten. Um, so I mean, the fact, and this is very important. That's why I wanted to start off with the premise that we are against the. Because once we start attaching crimes to the identity of the criminal, then it becomes problematic. Oh, he's a good sheikh. He has a very nice voice and recitation of the Quran. He cries when he reads the Quran. And then we fall into, because this person basically can do whatever they will. And we will continue to say, well, they yeah. have a good heart. They have this or that, they mm. have that. We must never, ever justify them, whoever the perpetrator and whoever the victim. And that's why one of the things that I think we have fallen short as a Muslim community is that we haven't said enough about other people who have been wronged, either by the Americans or by the Russians or by the Chinese. Or We haven't done enough. Okay. It's only when it hits us and hits closer to home that we respond and sometimes we respond well, but we need to do more about dhulm around the world. So just, just wrapping up on the whole kind of axis of resistance and, and looking at Yemen and the Houthis, and the recent uh, airstrikes led by mm. the US, Britain, uh, Bahrain, mm. with the help of Australia and the Netherlands, um, some of the most powerful nations of the world choosing to bomb and intervene to protect their own geopolitical financial interests in the Red Sea. Um, what's your thoughts on that? So they are able to intervene. They are. They are able to intervene. They, are. they have interests that are worth protecting. There's a very close by. <laughs> At the end of the Red Sea, near Bab al Mandeb, there's a small island. And that island is an intelligence base for the Israelis. That island hasn't been targeted. And it's. It's, it's our public knowledge. I, I know about it. So, the you know, it must, must, be, must be public <laughs> knowledge. Um, so, it, it calls into question the whole thing. But listen, again. You want to force the world's hand and to threaten one of the busiest maritime lanes in the entire world by doing this. Okay, fine. In order to bring some sort of parity to the whole conflict. Okay, fine. But um, 
just muddying the waters and sort of um do you believe it's flexing do you think they're just flexing there is there is a a big part of flexing absolutely and i i also think that iran has always uh, pursued creating issues in order to build uh, you know to create smoke screens um iran iran's strategy is always that uh, it creates chaos outside its borders in order to protect it creates buffer zones insides and and inside there are catastrophic issues you know the economy the young unemployment but it re- maintains its integrity by creating these problems in afghanistan yes. in europe in iraq in other, other countries and the such so uh, so i i'm never uh, a believer in um, the intentions of iran because of what i've seen now for decades not not only years not only syria not only it's been for decades what about the state of your homeland iraq the people it's a country that was it's a country that used to be that used to have so much potential we had a problem and that problem was that we were governed by a dictator and he was a zalim and he needed to be moved or removed um but certainly not in the way that he was sure. when uh, the time came i i've long life there are dictators to remove yeah there is, is, exactly is that principle we can agree on i think that, that Listen, we need to build our own legacy. We need to yes. build our own future. We can't manufacture. We can't go to Tesco, Sainsbury, Morrison and buy a package it. of democracy. Mm-hmm. We can't do that. And it must must never be imposed by uh, a foreign intervention or the such. And therefore, whilst I I I'm a lifelong opponent of the Ba'ath regime and of Saddam Hussein, when the time came and it was evident that the americans and the brits wanted to invade i was the first to organize demonstrations against the war and when people were slightly baffled i said what what is it that you can't get these wars will target the people they will take over the country they will disseminate the country itself that's not what i'm looking for i want the dictator removed and that dictator inshallah we saw in the arab spring how dictators could be removed absolutely they could be removed we ben don't Ali, need the americans Mubarak, to send in to do Allah. us a favor and and hang on and i look to the americans in order to build my country the americans have no record of ever ever building any nation whatsoever their only only record is about occupation dissemination destruction carnage and division that's the only thing mention a place in the world where the americans got involved and then all of a sudden it flourished economically uh socially there is not a single Can't one name you a single one so to hang our hopes on the americans getting involved is really you know a real waste of time and uh, unfortunately iraq that used to be for generations for at least two three generations used to be the place where the arab people came in order to seek medical treatment where they came to study at their universities Absolutely. where they came in order you know the streets were beautiful the gardens were beautiful Iraq was uh, on the periphery of getting to becoming an industrial nation. And the problem we had was the problem of governance. And that was something that I think the Iraqi people could have and should have given the opportunity to do for themselves. 
But unfortunately, people thought that um, playing on the Shia-Sunni divide, on the Arab-Kurd divide, that that would serve the best interests of the country. Uh, little did they read history and know that this is the very, very ploy of how to destruct a nation. It's been now more than 20 years, 21 years now almost, and Iraq is a, is a, is a shadow not even that of its old self. Where you start in order to rebuild, Allahu Alam, corruption is rife, militias are roaming the streets, they control the streets. Um, people are divided, people are f afraid of each other. It saddens me that I see someone sp speaking an Iraqi accent and I, I fear of approaching them. Uh, either because I'll have to introduce myself as Anas al-Tikriti and people will assume that I'm a pro-Saddam or a pro-Bafish or the such and they'll sort of be a little bit uh, uncomfortable or that uh, we'll start asking ourselves questions. There's, there's a, a list of questions, by the way, that Iraqis know in order to find out whether the other person is a Sunni or a Shia. Tell us. Oh, well, I mean, uh, oh, where are you from? Baghdad, that's too general. Okay, so I need to know where from. Uh, which part of Baghdad? Oh, I come from, if it's a straight answer, Kavamiya, Shi'i, Adamiya, Sunni, but then it might be somewhere else, like Hayil <laughs> Jami. Oh, okay, so what do I need to ask? Okay, what do you do? So there's a list of questions in order then to guess, and all of this, and people, when they see their fellow country people in a foreign land, they embrace them, they welcome them, they celebrate them. But Iraqis, unfortunately, have never had that uh, that luxury. How unfortunate and sad. It is. May Allah rectify the affairs Amin. of Allah. I mean, final question. How realistic is any kind of peace or coexistence with the Zionist entity? Before yourself, we had our dear brother and friend, Ustad Azam Tamimi, yes. Hafidahullah, I mean. And he kind of proposed a, an idea called Hudna, mm. right? We didn't get to elaborate on it much. We, we touched upon it. How is that, how is any kind of coexistence different to normalization? That's the first question I'm going to ask you. Because mm. now we're, the final <clears throat> thing that we're talking about now is the plausibility of any future Palestinian statehood. Mm. In light of the fact that we know the Israelis are no longer even concerned about a two-state solution, any Palestinian state that they envisage can't have an armed force, can't mm. have an air force, can't have weapons. So they're basically a de facto puppet state, yeah. really. Can't defend itself. Can't defend itself. Mm. So, so what does a Palestinian statehood look like? What does it, can there be such a thing as coexistence? Mm. Is it perpetual resistance? What is this stuff? Um, okay, starting from the very top, Zionism is, um, is in, in my view, and people are free to disagree, but in my view, it's an evil ideology because it's based on division, it's based on supremacy, it's based on uh, a right that isn't there. Um, and the absolute belief that that right must be sought, whatever the means, mm -hmm. whatever the means. Um, and therefore I have an essential problem with Zionism, with Zionism itself. And therefore even um, some Jewish voices who um, sound critiques of Netanyahu, for instance, or the IDFs and their policies in, in Gaza, whilst 
holding on to their Zionist ideology, I find problematic. I Same. find problematic, and therefore I'm 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 extremely um, optimistic when I find countless Jewish, formerly Zionist voices who are now renouncing, disavowing um, Zionism. I think that's that's the the way forward. Um, but coming back to your question in regards with trying to find a solution, um, like I said earlier, I mean, a ceasefire is, is the absolute critical demand today, right now, because people are falling every single minute. And that's something that needs to stop. But then the question is, okay, so what's after? I mean, to assume that after that, the Palestinian people will somehow be free or the such is, I, I think, is, is too much of a wishful thinking. <coughs> we need to create a condition whereby people can breathe, people can live. The seas on Gaza, on Gaza needs to be lifted. It needs to, to end. Because if you still have two and a half million people trapped inside an open cage, it doesn't really make for any kind of prospect of any kind of coexistence. A coexistence is a coexistence. It means that a particular society of two people are living side by side, operating side by side, uh, developing or working or whatever, creating an economy side by side. That's the meaning of coexistence. Just, yeah. If such a prospect was to be merely entertained by the Israelis, we can then talk about creating that kind of condition. Because for now, it seems like they have a problem with existence. That's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, from not the statements of one crazed rabbi, not the statements of one politician who's out of their no. heads. We are hearing this time and time and time again from an array of influential figures within Israeli society. Across the spectrum. Well, coming out and saying, and, the, and, and you know, someone on uh, one of the interviews I, I watched a, a while ago said something that really struck me. He said the level of carnage and the level of destruction does not tell of a party that is willing to entertain the existence of the other. The, you know, you don't go and bulldoze down your neighbor's house and then say, let's live side by side as friends. That doesn't happen. Hospitals, schools, universities. Their children. Their, their children. Everything. Everything. Their futures. They and then you say, their livestock, well, everything. you know, we, we seek peace. No, you don't seek peace through, through, through what you're doing. So, so the, the conditions that would allow a coexistence. And by the way, this was something that the leadership of Hamas proposed on numerous occasions in the past, from Sheikh Ahmed Yassin to even the, the current political leadership. Mm -hmm. They proposed that kind of long-term ceasefire. But there are conditions that need, I mean, we can't have a ceasefire when you're, you're caging half of the Palestinians inside Palestine proper. You can't. So there needs to be conditions in order for a form of coexistence to, to operate. And then to, to come to some sort of agreement on how the future will unfold, similar to what Sinn Féin did mm. in terms of the Troubles Ireland. They entered the, they, they signed on the Good Friday. Good Friday Agreement, but they refused to take up their seats in Parliament because that would entail them giving up yep. on their most problematic issue, and that is loyalty to the British 
and, a, and a United um, for the other side of exactly. United, yeah. So and and arriving at that particular juncture is acceptable. But like I said, you need to have the conditions that would allow this. I don't see the conditions right now. I don't see the conditions. Normalizing would be let's come back to this particular analogy for Sinn Fein to take up their seats in Westminster to sign that oath of allegiance to the king and to give up on the idea of a, a one unified island. That would be normalization. Okay. Normalization on behalf of the Palestinians would be to say, fine, stay in Safad, stay in Lud, stay in uh, those, uh, those are your places and we'll trade with you, we'll deal with you as though you are the rightful owners of these places and um, we'll just, uh, you know, go on about our lives as, as normal. That is normalization, to assist that occupying party to flourish, to mm -hmm. get stronger, to get more sustainable. That is normalization. There's a big difference. How does, can coexistence survive and exist alongside resistance? That is the final question of today's podcast. Can the two even exist? You see, one thing that I've learned, uh, uh, and that is, I have learned uh, the hard way not to speak on behalf of someone who is oppressed, not to dictate to them how they should behave, how they should react. Um, it's like, for us, I remember having a discussion with someone who spent some time in one of the Arab dungeon cells. And he mentioned to me, he said, one of, the, uh, one of the things that used to bother me was that one of my cellmates used to make such a uh, loud ruckus at night, you know, uh, banging on stuff. And, and when we would say, why are you doing this? He would say, I want to prevent the guards from getting any sleep or any rest. And he said, he used to bother us so much. We used to say, please don't do this. I said, that's his form of resistance. Nothing would come of it. But the only thing he can do is to make sure they don't get any sleep. They're not going to get any sleep. That's the form of resistance. Who am I to say, no, subhanAllah, yani he, this guy, he shouldn't have. He prevented them from waking up to make fajr. Mm. You know, the guards from waking up and praying a fajr salah the sad. I have no place uh, legislating or talking on behalf of or dictating to an oppressed person living under occupation, living as a subhuman in their own land, um, how they should behave, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. There are things in my niceties I would reject, absolutely, I reject violence. I absolutely condemn violence in my, in my surroundings. But if I was to be in that particular situation, if my humanity is degraded, if my uh, mind is, is confiscated, if my ability to think, to act, to behave, to live is undermined and undervalued, who says what I'm capable of doing? And that goes for everyone, everyone, absolutely. So um, I don't know, I mean, you're asking a question I don't know. I mean, would coexistence, for instance, I mean, like I said, I like the, uh, the Sinn Féin analogy. And 
Sinn Féin renounces all acts of terrorism or violence that's committed. Mm -hmm. um, um, but their call for a unified island still there. is still there. And, um, you know, that particular beacon shines strong. There is a way, but you have to have willing partners. You can't... Yeah, there's a there's a saying in Arabic. You can't say in Arabic. You well, you can't marry the princess from one side. You know, it's like that guy who said, you know, I'm marrying the princess's daughter, the the, the king's daughter. They say, what? Are you crazy? Why would she marry you? He said, well, it's fifty percent done. I said, what do you mean fifty percent? He said, I, I've agreed. <laughs> she doesn't know about it, but I've agreed, so it's fifty percent done. Job half done. It's it, it, it needs willing partners. I've learned one thing from my, <laughs> my trek in negotiating a release of hostages, is that if, if the kidnappers are absolutely unwilling to negotiate, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. So is a that, lot is of- Is that where we're at now with Israel? I there's nowhere to go. I mean, the, 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 when the world feels kind, generous towards the Palestinians, it will talk about that viable Palestinian state that can't even defend itself <laughs> when the world is feeling generous. So imagine in normal circumstance what we're talking about. We're talking about an enslaved people who have, who have to, to, to walk the straight line, who have to not create too much nuisance and make uh, you know, troubles for, 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 for Israel and the, and, the, and the Israelis, and that need to understand that they have a post and that they must never ever go beyond that particular post. We're talking about a subhuman race, a subhuman people. So I don't see it. The idea is fine, but is it, is it, I mean, and this is another thing that we must learn in our lives. It's not down to the victim to design a solution for the problem. <laughs> the, the, the party that is holding the bigger gun are the Israelis backed by the international community, including our own government. They should end the hostilities and accept that the other is a human being equal and then sit around the table. It's crazy that 75 years on, with 25,000 people killed in the last few months, we're still talking about seeing the Palestinians as humans. It's, it's an issue. Do you see them as humans or not? I have heard plenty of Israelis that refuse see that as an existential threat. To see them as equals, to see them as human, is an existential threat. Um, and as, for, for as long as that continues, Israel, and I speak from my reading of history and my recent experiences, Israel will never find peace. Like I said, I think that the idea of Israel that was built uh, during the Nakba in 1948 has long gone. What we have now is an entity that is has has rid itself of any facade of humanity of morality of truth of justice was it the former prime minister or president who at the very very start berated the the journalists and said 
you're asking too many questions. If why, you're do looking, you feel so, why do you feel sorry for them? If you're looking for truth, yeah. you're for serving Hamas. Yeah. If you're looking for credibility, you're serving Hamas. I mean, I don't know whether he meant what he said. Oh, he meant it. There's no way he's crazy. Trying. Absolutely absurd. But that's unfortunately reflects the reality of how the Israelis uh, are now thinking. And unless that ends, there, there's never going to be a, uh, an actual solution. Sadana, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, May Allah bless you and preserve you. Ameen. Ameen. My dear brothers and sisters and friends and foes, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's podcast as much as I did. There was a lot to uh, digest, a lot to go through, a lot to reflect upon. Um, if you like this episode, remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, like the video, leave a comment. And if you're an avid audio listener, you can find this show on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh.